This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Horror. Scary movie fans, such as myself, will hear that a movie is based on a true story. Some of them we know, but most, well, we never go on to find out just what that true story is. So in this series, we explore and find out exactly what the true story is behind the movies we love. The 1982 movie, The Entity, is the rather unnerving story about Carla Moran, a typical single mother in Los Angeles having a very typical evening with her children. As she begins getting ready to go to bed, she is hit in the face. It bloodies her mouth. She's then thrown onto her bed where a pillow is held over her face and she tries desperately to remove the pillow, but she is unable to. Then it becomes glaringly obvious that she is being raped. She begins to lose consciousness, and when it's finally over, she is able to remove the pillow from her face. She then begins to scream in terror, and her teenage son comes running in to see what the commotion is. Her two daughters are not far behind. Carla starts screaming that a man had been in her room, and her son frantically begins searching. The window in his mother's room is closed and locked. He runs to the bathroom to check there as her daughters begin to cry and hug their mother. Her son checks the closet. No one is there. He then runs through the house looking for signs of an intruder. But, as suspected, everything is closed, locked, and secure. There is no intruder. He goes back into her room to reassure her that it must have been a bad dream. Her son then consoles his two little sisters. So as anyone would, Carla questions whether or not anything really happened, but she gets back into bed, fully clothed this time, and starts to read when she notices her nightstand beginning to shake. She sniffs the air, picking up a horrible odor. Her breath shows as the room has gone cold. As her whole room begins to shake as if an earthquake is occurring, she runs out of her room and her door slams shut behind her. She grabs her children, leaves the house, and goes to a friend's house. So is she being attacked by a ghost? Well, those that have seen the movie know the answer to that, and those who haven't should give it a chance. It is an older movie, but as I rewatched it for this podcast, making sure that I was remembering things correctly from watching it a hundred years ago, it was still very entertaining and very good. But disclaimer, disclaimer, I have to warn you, it does show simulated rape scenes. Okay, so this movie was based on the true story of Doris Blyther. 
Now from my research, there's not a lot of details about Doris's early life. The very few people she let into her life all said that she refused to give any information about her childhood, that she would actually get a little grouchy about it. What information we do have is from one of her sons, and I also found a great YouTuber, Mr. Self-Destruct UK. So most of her background information I discuss comes from these two sources. It is believed that she was born in 1940, and her birth name was Doris McGowan. Her family was considered upper middle class, and she apparently also had a brother. Unfortunately, both of her parents were apparently alcoholics, and it is said that they abused her. We know that when she was 10 years old, she and her family moved from somewhere in the Midwest to California. It is said that she was then cast out, disowned, and cut off completely from her family in her younger teens by both of her parents, as well as an uncle and an aunt, because she was, quote, rambunctious and rebellious, unquote. Her son later stated that when she was younger, she played with Ouija boards and held seances. And as she matured, she drank and used drugs to quiet her mind. When her parents later died, any and all inheritance went to her brother. By this point, she was already a single mother with four children, all of whom had different fathers. She did have a few relationships with abusive men and failed marriages, which of course would make sense because the cycle of abuse statistics are unfortunately pretty high. So Doris was left poor and trying to take care of four children as a single parent. Needless to say, Doris was having a difficult time making ends meet. Now, Doris had her own, you know, quote, demons from a childhood of abuse and being with abusive men, and those that were around the family stated she also had a tense relationship with her three sons, who apparently resented her. My sources say due to this, there was a lot of negative energy surrounding her. Now, whether or not you believe in supernatural beings, occurrences, etc., etc., just buckle in, because this is going to be a wild ride. People who dabble in the occult or follow philosophies that involve specifically energy and so on might or might not agree with this, but my sources stated that the subconscious mind that is dark due to physical or verbal abuse, along with a difficult or negative childhood, become a sort of lightning rod for paranormal activity. This can include attracting poltergeist activity or psychosomatically creating it. In 1974, which would have made Doris 34 years old at the time, she moved from Santa Monica to Culver City, California with her four children. I don't know all of their names, but she had a son at that time that was 10 
and then her son that spoke about her, Brian, was 13 at the time. She had another son that was 16 and a daughter who was just six. As Doris moved into the house, supposedly an elderly Hispanic woman came and knocked on the door. Doris answered and the woman said, quote, you need to get out. I used to live here in this old house back when it was just a farm and I was a little girl. There is something very evil here. This place is haunted and you need to get out, unquote. And that was all that was said. With that, the woman walked away. And this, of course, shook Doris and her oldest son, who had happened to walk behind her to the door, but they shrugged it off, moved on. And then just a few short months later, she began experiencing horrible attacks. She stated the first attack was two male, small, creature-like entities that held her down, while a very large male entity violently raped her. Her middle son, Brian, said that his bedroom was on the other side of the wall from his mother's, and he heard these attacks. Brian also later stated that after this attack, he saw the bruising on her inner thighs, her ankles, and one shoulder. So there's actually a name for this, and it's called spectral rape, but good luck finding a lot of information about it. In essence, it is the lived reality, the physical experience of a flesh and blood rape with the perpetrator not having a physical body, aka a ghost or a spirit or an entity, if you will. Okay, so Doris and a girlfriend of hers were at a bookstore looking for books about hauntings and so on when they overheard two research assistants, Barry Taff and Carrie Gaynor, from the Paranormal Research Lab at UCLA's Neuropsychiatric Institute, and they were talking. She walked up to them and told them what was happening to her nearly daily at this point. She asked them if they'd come to her house and have a look. They, of course, were quite skeptical, but they decided to go. And once they got there, they observed that the house was a complete mess. They said it was, quote, in extreme disorder in household conditions, unquote. It would later be found out that the house had already been condemned twice. Barry and Carrie both noticed that Doris and her two older sons seemed to have a very negative relationship. But, in the end, they didn't believe that there was really anything paranormal happening, and they referred her to a psychiatrist at the university they worked at, and they left thinking she was, you know, not quite right, you could say. Now, Barry stated that Doris called them back about 10 days later, stating that friends of hers, as well as neighbors, had witnessed the paranormal activity, and would they please come back? Barry said, quote, We thought, okay, we'll humor her. It's not that far, unquote. And as they entered the house, they immediately picked up on a strong, disgusting odor. He described it as decomposing organic matter, rotting flesh. 
It was at this point the middle of August, but spots in the house were ice cold and Doris didn't have air conditioning. Then all of a sudden, as they were talking to her, a cabinet door came flying open and a frying pan flew out of the cabinet and landed on the floor. Barry said that they took the usual precautions and investigated to debunk the occurrence, except they couldn't. They decided then that it was possibly a serious case and they should set up some equipment to test and possibly record any phenomenon. And while they were there, by the way, there were no rapes. Her eldest son told them during a visit that he had watched his mother get attacked and raped by nothing. And as he ran to her aid, whatever the invisible thing was, threw him across the room with great force and try as he might, he could not help his mother. Barry said that what they did see were greenish yellow balls of light that looked like plasma flying and zooming around Doris's bedroom and in her bedroom only. So they took measures to seal any possible ways for anything to be able to get into the house from the outside, even sealing out any possible sources of light which only made the orbs glow brighter due to the darkness of the house. Barry described them as being about the size of a human fist. So the scientists began the process of trying to capture this phenomenon on film or in pictures. They did manage to capture a photograph of one of the orbs, but because it was moving, it appears to have a little tail. But again, that's just from movement. They set up magnetic points within her bedroom so that, due to how dark it was in the room, they'd be able to tell on the photograph or video exactly where it was in relation to the room. Another picture they were able to capture shows Doris sitting on her bed, clearly upset, and an arc of white light is over her head. Google it if you'd like. I encourage you. It's interesting to see and very obvious that it didn't come from a flashlight or anything of that sort because the light doesn't bend with the corner of the two walls that meet where the arc is. There's another photograph with two arcs of light. The arcs were these orbs in motion, so on the picture the orb would look like a streak of light, if you can imagine. The scientists took the photographs and the negatives to a photography expert who authenticated that they were not faked in any way. Okay, so a few weeks later, as the flying orbs were still happening, the scientists stated they watched as the orbs all of a sudden joined together to form the upper torso of a human male. It was moving, you know, turning its head. Barry stated that there was definite movement, and then it just dissipated. He also stated that upwards of 25 people were in that room, and everyone saw it. So they brought in a trained, what he called sniffer dog, to try to track down where that horrid odor was coming from, but the dog could not locate any specific source. They could feel the cold spots in the house, 
making them have, you know, goosebumps or being able to see their breath. But no thermometer or temperature taking advice, temperature taking device ever registered any difference. But keep in mind though, folks, that this was 1974 and the equipment wasn't as sophisticated as what we have today. So they brought in the head of their department to have her see and experience what they were. And the first night, nothing happened. During Barry's interview, he then begins to explain that Doris drank heavily and her drink of choice was beer. He and the others observed that when Doris would quit drinking, the happenings would also quiet or completely stop. So the whole investigation began on August 22nd and lasted for 10 weeks. At the end of this period, Doris was able to save up enough money to move out of that house and move to Carson, California. Barry and the other members of that team lost track of her, but were finally able to track her down by the author of the book, The Entity, Frank DeFolita, who had apparently developed a, quote, close bond with her, unquote, and they visited her at her new home. Within weeks of her moving, the phenomenon began happening again. The cabinet doors opening, lights flickering off and on, and so on. So Barry and his team set up a voice recorder to see if they could capture the sound of things, you know, opening or flying around, crashing, and what have you. Now, while it was recording, they, with their own ears, heard nothing. But when they played the audio back, Barry said you could hear a slow, heavy breathing, along with two slow footsteps, then a dragging sound, then two slow footsteps, then the dragging sound again, and that sound repeated a few times, then the recorder shut itself off. So as you can imagine, Doris was terrified because whatever this was had followed her to her new home and it was intensifying. She moved as fast as she could out of there to San Bernardino. At this point, the scientists didn't visit her at this new home, but the author, Frank DeFolita, did, and he reported to them that things were still happening, but with much less intensity. She then finally just left California completely and moved to Texas, and Barry and his team lost all communication with her. So later, her middle son Brian was interviewed, and he said that yes, they had been attacked in that house, and that living in it was hell. He said they were pushed and bitten and scratched. He also said there were a total of four entities inhabiting that house and that they used energy to be able to take whatever shape they wanted. Brian said they were attracted to the very negative attitudes of his mother and his older brother. Brian also said that the reason his mother was drinking so heavily was because of the stress and fear of this situation being so intense. She was looking for an escape from it all, but he was adamant that she was not an alcoholic, but others disagree. 
So as I mentioned, the YouTuber Mr. Self-Destruct UK speaks about some theories. One theory is that if she drank as much as people said she did, she could have been getting blackout drunk. She described two small entities and one larger one holding her down. And perhaps that was her three sons trying to keep her from hurting herself or possibly cooking and accidentally burning down the house and what have you. But again, Brian stated that that was untrue, that his mother was not an alcoholic and that he and his brothers never held her down for any reason. Another theory is that the rape that she experienced was during an episode of sleep paralysis, which actually affects about 20% of the population. Now, I know most of you are familiar with this concept, but for those that aren't, sleep paralysis is when someone sort of wakes up from sleeping, but they experience nearly if not a total body paralysis. They cannot move. They cannot speak, but they can see and hear. And a lot of people experience hallucinations, which can be terrifying. So when we sleep, our brain basically shuts down our body, paralyzing us so that we don't get up and act out our dreams. Thus, you know, walking out into traffic or falling off a cliff. You get the idea. And many experts believe that this explains the claims of alien abductions and other paranormal events. The person is simply experiencing sleep paralysis and hallucinating because it is during REM sleep when you are also in the middle of dreaming. Ultimately, Doris died in 1999 at the age of 59 from respiratory failure, according to her son. She maintained that, no matter where she moved, those entities followed her. But the occupants of the house in Culver City, Sense, and Current state this haunting phenomenon was just about her as they have not experienced anything whatsoever. So, what do you think happened? Did she have sleep paralysis? Or was she such a heavy drinker that her boys had to physically restrain her to keep her safe? Or was she really under attack from entities that we don't fully understand? Thanks for listening. Music by Kevin MacLeod on Incompetech.com.